Two Towns Over is a podcast where we explore the fascinating world of urban legends, conspiracy theories, and campfire tales to find out if there are any truths behind the legends. With dark humor and natural curiosity, we tackle the darkened streets of the town you all know. Welcome to the town with no name. This is Two Towns Over. But we stopped pegging him. He stopped asking us. Well. Okay. Are you going to force yourself on Mike? Absolutely not. There you go. That's our whole deal. Right? Like, (laughs) fucking come on, man. So, we've done. Well, hi, everybody. Even PCP, excuse me. Even SCP Pete is not that big of a monster now. Come on. I never thought he was a monster. I thought he was just. He's beautiful. Yeah. He's still a monster. You can just be not evil and also a monster. That's true. Goku Accurate. is one of those. Grover. Grover is one of those. Cookie yeah. Monster yeah. is literally <laughs> its name. Yeah. But, um, so welcome everybody. <clears throat> to- Little known example, Daniel Radcliffe. That one's just funny. Okay. Anyway. I don't understand. Some people will laugh at that and they're not you guys, so fucking move on. <laughs> So welcome Fair. to uh, Campfire Stories. Uh, I am Don. I'm Ruben. And we have a special guest. Kelsey. Uh, Kelsey. You heard her in the midweek episode. Um, we don't have Josh or Kat this week because they're lame and want to have a living. It's like they wanted to keep their jobs or something. Yeah. Ridiculous. So um, the past two weeks we've dealt with uh, hauntings and possessions and murder I just decided this week we're going to, it's still a little bit kind of bizarre. Let us not forget Jimbo Shrump. And Jimbo Shrump. Yeah. You got to get that P at the end. That was one of the. Jimbo Shrump. There you go. You Um, got to get the shrump. So what I decided this week, we're going to go a literary route. Mm -hmm. And we're going to discuss two books. Okay. One is fictional. Yes. And one is a real actual book. Okay. Most of the people listening will probably recognize the first one just by its name alone. Um, pretty much if you've watched any horror movies in the past 20 years or so, this book has popped up a lot. Uh, we're going to talk about the Necronomicon. Yes. And I have then a copy. The, the Necronomicon pops up also in fantasy literature yes. often. And also the history of the Necronomicon. Which we will get into. And the, the real life book is a book this called was... the Voynich Manuscript. Have you ever heard of the Voynich Manuscript? It sounds familiar, but I also watch anime, so maybe. Okay. (laughs) But we're going to start with the Necronomicon. And so I'm going to give a little history. This is a really good topic As to the story behind the Necronomicon. So the Necronomicon, also known by its Arabic title, the Katib... I was also just thinking about how this is the perfect episode for you to just randomly be at. (laughs) So also known by its Arabic title, the Katib al-Aziz was written by the 8th century in the 8th century by the poet Abdul Al-Hazred. I'm sorry, Al-Hazred. Sorry. Now Al-Hazred served in the court of the of a minor nobleman in the city of Sana'a in the country of Yemen. While serving I recognized Yemen. There you go. Well, while serving in the court Thank you American public education. <laughs> while serving in the court and for reasons unknown, he left the city and visited the catacombs of Egypt the ruins of Babylon, and the ruins of Babylon. 
after which he began a decade-long sojourn into the deserts of Arabia, which at the time was believed to be protected by evil spirits and monsters of death. In his last years, he visited Damascus, where he wrote the Necronomicon. The Arab title of Al-Aziv means the nocturnal sounds of insects, which was believed to be the howling of demons. So anytime you've heard cicadas or crickets, that's actually demons. I get that. Yeah. I mean, sometimes it sounds very similar, I would assume. <laughs> <laughs> Little tiny ones, usually. <laughs> like, it's a shrill sound, certainly. Yeah. So the story of Al-Hazred is spectacular to say this. It's such a good name. Mm-hmm. Some names just sound real good. He has a nickname, good. too. It's <clears throat> yes. called the Mad Arab. Yep, that's, or the Mad Poet. That's mm-hmm. better. Yeah. So, I don't um, like that word either, just so everybody knows. It's bad. <laughs> As the story goes, as told by his biographer, biographer Eben Kalakan, in 738 AD, Al-Hazred was said to have been seized by an invisible monster in this broad daylight. This is bullshit, right? This is truly not correct. Not real. Um, it's debatable. <laughs> yeah. Um, in front of a crowded city square and devoured horribly. But the more fascinating aspect of Al-Hazred's life was his madness, earning him the nickname the Mad Poet. He claimed to see the city of pillars, known also as Aram, and to have found beneath the ruins of a nameless desert town the writings and secrets of a race purported to be older than mankind, and he began to worship the civilization's gods. Oh, and some precursor shit? Yeah. Gods that he called... Ancient Sumeria. Yeah. Yogg-Sothoth and Cthulhu. Okay, so this is fully just Lovecraft. Yeah, yes and no. We'll get to it. All right. By 1950 A.D., the book had begun to develop a significant circulation among the philosophers of the age. Because the ancient Sumerian gods had names that were definitely way different, but much simpler than. If, if you Yogg read, Sothoth no, no. If you read the uh, the book, it it goes into a bunch of different gods and goddesses' names yeah. that okay. are much more. And we're gonna we're gonna get to the actual book. I you can't can find remember the them right now, but I remember it was. I mean, Gilgamesh and Enkidu were both Enkidu. like. What? I hear Inkydo. I think of the little Pac-Man ghost. That... It's not so... Inkydo. It's Enkydo. Enkydo. Sorry. Enkydo. And it's um. It is. Their names are like Ishtar. Mm-hmm. I think is one of them. So that's actually Babylon. That so is Babylon. Sumeria. It would be Astarte. Yeah, that's the, the one I'm love. trying to think of. Love, yeah, also yeah. considered a demon. To put like, it's just. The names were much, so you, he just chose names that confused me. Because <laughs> I know Yogg-Sothoth and Cthulhu as, you know. The great Cthulhu. old ones. The great Truly old. and completely made up. But yeah. like. Although ish. there are, there, if we were to actually do, a, a, which I don't want to, if we were to do a deep dive on Lovecraft, there are people who actually believe that he oh, was for sure. a prophet. For sure. They and, believe that lots yeah, of his I'm writings aware. are. And he was getting images of these experiences. creatures. Yeah. Um. What time did he live in? It was the early 1920s. Early late 1800s, early 1900s. So that one we can attribute to lead poisoning. <laughs> so, <Syphilis>. um, yeah. <laughs> so by 950 AD. I don't mean to laugh about syphilis, but it was just, it was, you know, culturally appropriate to choose syphilis, and that made me laugh. You know, you get it. <laughs> So by 1950 or 950 AD, the book had begun to develop a significant circulation among the philosophers, and it was secretly translated into Greek by Theodorus Philetus of Constantinople under the title. Are you sure he wasn't? It wasn't in Istanbul. Well, not at this time. 
It was Constantinople. But then it was Istanbul? It became Istanbul. Yeah. So if you had a date what was in it before Constantinople, then? she'll be waiting in Istanbul. Mm-hmm, yeah. Mm-hmm. What was the what was the name of it before then? Istanbul, Constantinople. No, it was nobody's business but the Turks. Oh, sorry. Never mind. <laughs> That's why. Why did it get the works? Now, why it changed, I can't say. Thank, finally. But people just liked it better that way. Thank you. All right. So, um, <sighs> which I was heartbroken to find out that was not originally a "They Might Be Giants" song. What? That's actually an old song. Are you what? Are I'm you fucking fair, with me? No, I'm not. I for real. I forget what I was doing one day. I it came up. It was like a 1940s because I didn't know that. Ima- what did you just say? Who? Who? They might be giants. I did not know that they had done this. Yeah. Really? Yeah. They. Might. This is such a reversal of roles. <laughs> We've been listening. To the, we, that's one of the songs that, like, my family we would sing like on road trips and shit. Yeah. But that's, you didn't know that it, they might be giants? Not at all. You knew it the old version. Yes. See, I only knew that they might be giants. Because right? Istanbul, then Constantinople. Yeah. Was Istanbul. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It came off the same album as Particle Man. <laughs> what? <Yeah. laughs> that, okay. Mm-hmm. I mean, I believe you. <clears throat> yeah. But like. I mean, there's not much difference in the songs. They sound almost the same. Yeah. I mean, that makes sense. So. You, there's It's not really a song you can change up that much. It's yeah. just a very simple tune. Yeah. So I'm assuming the guy's name is Philatus, which just sounds sexual, um, of Constantinople under the Necronom- under the title the Necronomicon. For a century, it compelled certain experimenters to terrible attempts when it was suppressed and burnt by the patriarch Michael. And Necronomicon means something to do with death and names and something. Yeah, else. the names of the dead. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. And we're gonna yeah, we'll we'll break down the uh, philology of it. Thank you. After this, it is only scarcely heard of, but in 1228, Olus Wormius made a Latin translation later in the Middle Ages. People might notice that I'm not making fun of these names. That's because these people are not American, and I do not feel comfortable <laughs> making fun of these names. <laughs> um, and the Latin text was printed twice. Once Although in- Wormius, though. Wormius, yeah. Um, the Latin text was printed twice, once in the 15th century in black letter, which I don't know what that means. Uh, that was evidently printed in Germany, and then once in the 17th century, probably in Spain. Uh, Spain. Black, uh, red letter. What time? This was the 19 or the 1220, like the Black 1200s, letter? Middle Ages. I don't know, but what? red letter. That's that's biblical. That's like Bible. I know it as the biblical one. Right. I like a red know. letter Bible just means that anything that Jesus is quoted as saying isn't red. Is in red. Right. But um, I don't know what that means yeah. otherwise. So opposite the devil. <laughs> so I don't know if red lettering was a thing back then because pe- people couldn't fucking read in the twelve. Right, yes. right, right. So right. I don't, I don't know. I, I don't know. So maybe it was like official documents versus religious ones or something. Maybe both editions, being without identifying marks, are located as to time and place by internal typographical evidence only. So, so it was the only oh, way they could tell what it basically was. Basically, it was just or where like, it came from. Yeah. It's just yeah, by yeah. where it they written. found it. Got right. it. So the work, both in Latin and Greek, was banned by Pope Gregory the Ninth in twelve thirty two. Shortly after its Latin translation uh, called attention to it. Now the Arabic original was lost as early as Wormius's time, as indicated by his prefatory note, and no sight of the Greek copy, which was printed in Italy between fifteen hundred and fifteen fifty, has been reported since the burning of a certain Salem man's library in 1692. So we're roughly 800 years later yes. than this this original Arabic junk. Correct. Okay. We're basically talking about the the limited number of copies of the actual Necronomicon. 
Uh huh. Which mm-hmm. makes sense because it's old ass book. Right. So it's English tra- supposedly. And, yes, an English translation. You will learn that I am very skeptical. <laughs> well, Whereas I'm the pagan. Well, we're gonna get there. We'll get there. So, an English translation made by Dr. D was never printed and exists only in fragments recovered from the original manuscript. Of the Latin texts now existing, one from the 15th century is known to be in the British Museum under lock and key. So, here's a good time, actually, to, to start talking about... I actually really like the story of the Necronomicon. It's really interesting and fun. Yeah. I don't believe... Like, I believe it's hard... For me to decide, because with a story like this, this is why this is good. See, Kelsey, welcome to the podcast. Hello. <laughs> I I have a running sort of uh, beef with the suspense and horror genres in general, and by that I mean um, I want the people to write more believable stories. This is a good example because this is an old manuscript, and even the oldest manuscript we have. The Epic of Gilgamesh, I'm pretty sure, is still the oldest one. I do not know recent developments. Sorry if you're that type of nerd. I do apologize. But um, it's like, if not the oldest, one of the oldest things we have. And it is fully, like, incomplete in a way that the Necronomicon should be incomplete. Like, it is preserved as a historical document in a way that the Necronomicon has not been. and that makes me think that either the Necronomicon started off as fiction or in pick your crusade, not just the Christian ones, pick your religious battles, um, metaphorically and literally in this case. It may have started off as like a religious manuscript or something like that and been like fantasied up. Right, gussied up to look harmless, right. basically. So I, you know, it's one of those things where it's just so old that we don't know. We were just talking about the 1500s just after yeah. that. So um, another copy from the 17th century is in the Bibliothèque Nationale in Paris. A 17th century edition is in the Widener Library at Harvard and the Library of Miskatonic University at Arkham. Oh, oh. right. Yeah. Also in the Library of the University of Buenos Aires. Numerous other copies probably exist in secret, and a 15th century one is persistently rumored to form part of a collection of a celebrated American millionaire. Here's another, because you just did mention the two big ones. Yeah. For the, uh, it, some of you will know, many of you will, most of you will probably know about, you know, the um, uh, Lovecraftian Arkham universe. The city of Arkham and the Miskatonic University. Right, the Cthulhu universe. Mm-hmm. We have played a, a partial campaign so far. We plan to get back to it at some point. Uh, we played Call of Cthulhu, which is which is the tabletop role playing version of that. And you know, Arkham and Miskatonic University show up in damn near all of it. Yeah. And um, one of the reasons why I said earlier that it, the Necronomicon hasn't been like preserved as a historical document is because when is the last time? Kelsey, a person who has played, you know, fantasy role-playing games. When is the last time a game had the Epic of Gilgamesh or Beowulf as a plot point and not be the story? Never. That is kind of what I mean. That is why I 
I I usually fall on the side of skepticism right. with things like this. This is one of those where it's like, yeah, I don't necessarily believe it, but I can't just say, nah, it wasn't real. Because like, even if I don't believe in the gods and the magic and shit, it was a religious practice that people may have held dear. Maybe. I don't know. So like, I'm not, you know, I'm going to be a little bit less harsh this episode. Sorry, I guess. A still vaguer rumor uh, credits the preservation of a 16th century Greek text in the Salem family of Pickman. But if it was so preserved, it vanished when the artist are you with the artist are you Pickman, who disappeared early in 1926. The book is rigidly suppressed by the authorities of most countries and by all branches of organized ecclesiasticism. Reading, it, it, I mean, yeah. <laughs> reading um, leads to terrible you consequences. You say that about Harry Potter. Yeah, the works of a certain author called Chris Crutcher. I don't know who that is. It was a he was like a young adult author. Oh. It was really good. Is Instrumental in guy? me growing up it was oh. awesome. I don't know any of the fucking book titles, but I remember oh. his goddamn name. <laughs> so um, reading leads to terrible consequences. It was from rumors of this book, of which relatively few of the general public know. R.W. Chambers is said to have derived the idea of his early novel, The King in Yellow. That's a that's a TV one. That's a mm, true crime. True no. detective. True detective. Yeah. Um, the contents that are public are scarce and haphazard. There's talk of a formula for mind transference, a passage that talks about something called the crawling ones, a large amount about some ancient civilization located in Antarctica, a chapter on someone called Umar Atwali, which translates to the Lord of Illusion, that describes something called the Ultimate Gate. In what language? Arabic or Greek I or English? It's in Arabic. Yeah. Okay. And or in the Sanskrit. That's what I was going to say. It's, it's, been, it's we've gone one through of those many two. civilizations so far. So I think the the copy that was like started being um, deciphered in the sixties was was in Arabic. Yeah. Okay. So, and the only complete known copy includes a long chant that is supposedly capable of summoning Yogg's to Thoth if used at the right time. We got to try it. I'm sorry. We just have to. <laughs> well, the thing is, is that like the book that you can buy at, at like a yeah. bookstore um, has like rituals and stuff in it. Mm-hmm. And um, it talks about a bunch of different gates. There are nine of them. And at each gate, there is a god or goddess from an ancient civilization, Sumeria, um, where they you will be tested. And some of those things are like, Take out an entire village, murder them all to get through mm-hmm. this gate. Mm-hmm. If you make mm-hmm. it through all nine, though, you basically become like a god. You can have anything you want, mm-hmm. um, but nobody gets through it because without losing their mind. Shit. I'm just thinking, you know, I'm thinking this is why I believe it's old. I believe like the mad poet says that he only gets through like three gates because he attempts it. He only gets through like three gates and doesn't make it any further before he loses his mind word i fully believe that this is old it's been a long time since i've read that so don't quote me on that okay (laughs) but it's close i know it's close we reserve the right to be wrong (laughs) every time we open our mouths on this program you can absolutely eat my whole dick at me bitch (laughs) try to find me on twitter anyway i don't have a twitter that's yeah that's what i was getting at um (laughs) um anyway this is why i believe the necronomicon is old but I don't know how old because it it encompasses so many tropes that are still modern in a way that other ancient things don't. Like if you read Gilgamesh, you can 
you can notice proto-tropes for storytelling. Like, there is a great flood, there is a journey, and trials, and character growth, and shit like that. For sure. But, like, you know, with the Necronomicon, it's, like, shit that I can... Like, the Nine Gates is, mm-hmm. like, a thing in yeah. everywhere. Mm-hmm. Like, the, you know, the if you do this trial, you'll become mad is all over the place. Like, um... You know, rituals and shit to summon demons or gods. Yeah, or if if you if you look at some of the pictures in the book, it's very um, Full Metal Alchemist. Yeah, um, that's another thing. Is like I don't know how much of that is modern design and how much of it isn't because I'm not like a scholar about right, geometric right. designs through history. And like a lot of it is true. Is like we make eyeballs a lot. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like somewhere deep in our subconscious is just make an eyeball. Make it look at you. Do it. <laughs> Do it now. I have one on my body. <laughs> right here. Like, put it there. Do it. Yeah, eventually I'll have the eye horse on me. So. Yeah, see? Yeah. And like, I'm actually going to put the, the burning eye from Alex see? Gray. Artwork. There we go. But. Our football stadiums do sometimes look like weird eyeballs <laughs> so i'm gonna read you a supposed um passage from lovecraft's necronomicon sweet okay are you gonna start am i gonna hear your voice backwards no. and go insane no, no. if you I do see, let me know will i see bats fly out of your ears i don't know i don't will think that's part monkey of it come out of your butt <laughs> maybe sweet nor is it to be thought that man is either the oldest or the last of earth's masters or that the common bulk of life and substance walks alone. The old ones were, the old ones are, and the old ones shall be. It's Christian. Not in the spaces we know, but between them. Well. They walk serene and primal, undimensioned and to us unseen. Yogg-Sothoth knows the gate. Is it Yogg-Sothoth or Yogg-Sothoth? Or does Sothoth. it matter? I don't know if it matters. Sweet. None uh, of us really know. We don't yeah. speak that language. Cool. Yogg-Sothoth cool, 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 cool. is the gate. Yogg-Sothoth is the key and the guardian of the gate. Past, present, future, all are one in Yogg-Sothoth. He knows where the old ones broke through of old and where they shall break through again. He knows they have trod earth's fields and where they still tread them, and why no one can behold them as they tread. By their smell can men sometimes know them near, but of their semblance can no man know, saving only in the feature of those they have begotten on mankind. And of those are there many sorts, differing in likeness from man's truest idol on, to that shape without sight or substance which is them. They walk unseen and foul in lonely places where the words have been spoken and the rites howled through at their seasons. The wind gibbers with their voices, and the earth mutters with their consciousness. They bend the forest and crush the city, yet may not forest nor city behold the hand that smites. Kadath is the cold waste, in the cold waste, hath known them, and what man knows Kadath? The ice desert of the south and the sunken isles of the ocean hold stone whereon their seal is engraver. But who hath seen them deep-frozen city on the sealed tower, long garlanded with seaweed and barnacles? Great Cthulhu is their cousin, yet can he spy them only dimly? Il-Shab so he's not even really a great old one? He's... He's like where the great old ones start. Yeah. Word. He's, he's like, like the baby lowest great one. old one. Oh, like, he's like the least scary. Just think about that for yeah. a second. <laughs> La Shabnagurath. As a foulness shall ye know them. Their hand is at your throats, yet ye see them not. And the habitation is even one with the guard- guarded threshold. 
Yogg-Sothoth is the key to the gate, whereby the spheres meet. Man rules now where they ruled once. They shall soon rule where man rules now. After summer is winter, after winter is summer. They wait patient and potent, for here shall they reign again. Honestly, that's more hopeful than they um. wanted it to sound, because <laughs> whether we are winter or summer, so shall we come again, bitch. Like, so here, here's the thing. Um, it's important to note that if you know anything about ancient Sumerian, um, I like the like their creation story so mm, their creation story is is different than a lot of other um religions as they believe that their their creators because he calls him uh c- the cousin of cthulhu is as like he is the cousin like humans are the cousin of cthulhu and um in ancient sumeria their gods are actually just aliens okay from another planet and they even name the planet and i think they call it is it Nibiru? Nibiru, I believe, is the name of the planet um, that their gods come from. And they come to Earth to mine it for gold because that's what all of their ships um, run off of. So they create a species. I would not have survived in Sumeria because as soon as you tell me, as soon as you tell me our gods are coming from a different realm, whether that be space or heaven or or otherwise, to mine a precious resource, I'm going to be like, bullshit. Capitalism is bullshit. Their, their, their creation story is worse than that. We weren't here. They took their own DNA and created us to do the work for them. And then once they were done, they left us here. Yeah, see, that's what I'm talking about. Named like I, five that were in charge, and then that was it. You can the, absolutely eat my the whole Anunnaki. dick. If you don't believe that I'm fucking forming a goddamn... Listen... <laughs> 2022 Ruben does not have to start a rebellion because other people are crazier than him. (laughs) But I can't keep my mouth shut on the internet. And if I was an ancient Sumerian, I guarantee you I'd be learning how to, I would study the blade and not anime. Like, like, right, right, right. And I would use that shit. Cause like if you fuck you if you come into uh, my town telling me you're a god I'm gonna test it. It's really interesting. Whatever really age interesting. I'm born into, I mean, I'm like, gonna test lots it. Lots of other religions followed that. Ancient Egyptians, oh yeah, pharaohs were considered and walking that's, this gods. This is the same and... reason I tell people that I don't believe in that shit either because it's like. But they're mm. the first ones to say, "Hey, no, they're just another species from another planet, and they made us. That's all to do a job, and then they left us here because we were tools, and." It's kind we, of the whole plot line to Stargate. Uh, here's Stargate. the thing, is that it's also the plot line to Cowboys versus Aliens. Well, I mean, it's the oldest written religion, religion specifically, yeah. that we have access to. So, um, I, I'm a Sumerian enthusiast, guys. Okay. So, that takes us out of the history of the Necronomicon. Now, keep in mind, when I wrote this, I did not realize we would have a pagan uh, <laughs> Sumerian on the show <laughs> so what i'm talking about is i'm Lovecraft's, not easily offended it's well, fine <laughs> lovecraft's version of the necronomicon which is also a beautiful version <laughs> so i will say i will not be holding back on lovecraft's version that's fine i do not respect that man i don't respect him either he i don't respect you know his works either honestly I, love his work. I think he was creative but i think that anybody can be creative well, and I think that he's like the basis for like all modern dark fantasy, basically. 
Yeah, he is, and I still it's fucking hate him. I love it. No, I'm sorry, I can't. Mm-mm. I got, I gotta love him. Just because, <laughs> hey, listen. Just because somebody is a father of something or someone does not mean that the something or someone has to respect that person. I mean, no, I mean, like he didn't have to be a good person. Oh but, no, uh, his but works are fine. I also, <laughs> I, like I also think that the only thing he was really good at was concepts. Yeah, and not agreed. execution. Agreed. Yes. Agreed. Agreed. That's why I say like. There are people on the internet right now who only go on Twitter, only on Twitter, and all they do is do, like, fucking plot hooks that would blow his out of the water. Yeah. Like, and they're getting no recognition, and yet we're still talking about this guy. Which is fine. (laughs) Which is fine, because I get it. It's a different time. They didn't have fucking Twitter back then. I'm not trying to say (laughs) that, but, like, Well, the thing... And I'm not going to defend Lovecraft at all. Yeah. I have no love for the man whatsoever. He was a he was racist, xenophobic. A kind of a monster. But. Yeah. But. Agreed. What I think he did, what he did well was world building. He wasn't a cool sex cult. And by cool, I mean sort of horrifying. <laughs> I mean, he created this quote unquote mythology that other people have fleshed out more than he did. Go to because, George Lucas. Well, yeah. I mean, yeah. he's Okay. So, yeah. Best comparison would be George Lucas. I don't like. Was Lovecraft. George Lucas in a sex cult? Maybe. <coughs> Sweet. Have you seen some of the fanfic? Anyway. <laughs> you got me with that one. You got me. All right. So, any. Uh, yes, I have glanced at DeviantArt once or twice. <laughs> so, any hardcore listener can probably ascertain at this point that the Necronomicon is fictional. From its contents of the book down to the actual author in reality, in reality, the Necronomicon and its contents are actually the brainchild of one of literature's most prolific and problematic writers of horror, H.P. Lovecraft. See, this is what I'm saying. When was he active? Like I said, the late 1800s, early 1900s. Yeah, yeah. See, that's what I was trying to get at earlier is like, I thought I knew that, but I guess I didn't really have it clicked in. But like when you started talking about like... Things in the book, yeah. I was like, "Well, this feels like a like an old adventurer book that they used to just like like a Magellan, yeah, like a fully bullshit, but like people believe you." Well, the thing with the Necronomicon is that 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 line between fiction and, and reality has kind of started yeah. to blur because somebody put out a book, and we'll talk about it, of the Sumerian rituals, which are you know real under the title the Necronomicon. There it is. Okay. So we're actually talking about two completely different books. Correct. Yes. Correct. One of which uses parts of the one that has the real Correct. Sumerian shit in it. And actually, there's another book uh, you can get at the any bookstore. It's called The History of the Necronomicon. And it goes into detail about uh, some people who um, translate it in mm-hmm. the 60s, right before um, JFK dies. Oh, word. Yeah. It's very interesting. Very interesting. So that's where I was getting confused is because I was like, I know a little bit about the one that's fully fictional. That's this what is, I mean when I say bullshit. It, I don't mean to disrespect people. Right, I'm just right, trying right. to say no, like. No, because the Necronomicon, can't, like the, the, the scrolls are real, okay? But when H.P. Lovecraft mentions it. So this was books, a racism, but twice. Kind of. So like somebody put these Sumerian. So wait, hold on, hold on. I'm trying, let me try to get the timeline right. Lovecraft releases his version of the Necronomicon first. Well, he, no, he never wrote a version. It's just mentioned like, in stories. Well, okay, so he he made up the Necronomicon as a concept. Yes. Before 
these thing this Sumerian thing came out? No, because like she said, there were scrolls. Oh, but I'm saying under the name Necronomicon. I don't know. Okay, I'm trying to ascertain. None of us are really sure yeah. about that. Which happened first. That's it must I'm have saying. happened around the same time. So kind if you read the history of the Necronomicon, the book I'm talking about, mm-hmm. um, it does say that it is titled the Necronomicon before H.P. Lovecraft, so, which is why p- people think that H.P. Lovecraft can like glance into the future or whatever he, they believe <laughs> he can fucking do. I but like he's good at plagiarism. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so like it, that's where it, everything kind of blurs because like the scrolls are real. Gotcha. They're real things. It's but like is it them. the same? Like, so so it seems like a case of like it was considered a new the word biggest was hoax. popular. Some people used it and then Pretty much. One of the... Okay, I get it. So they released this... Okay, okay. I think I I can kind of piece together a probable thing that when happened. It, when it was finally published in the 60s, mm. it was like the, the most feared book. It was considered the greatest hoax of all time, right next to when they uh, released uh, War of the World on the radio. <laughs> oh, word. So here... So it sounds like a case of a popular new word. Mm-hmm. Being used by a popular media artist, by a popular media artist, and also the scientific community for different reasons. Now, I would be willing to bet, knowing zero things about what's in that book, the Sumerian scroll one, that it had it was maybe called the names of the dead because maybe there were funeral rites in it and they thought it was a cool way to name a book. Perhaps there were some religious things in there that was just like, you know what I'm saying? Like, right, like the Book of the Dead in ancient you know, Egypt. Right. Yeah. Which or, is just a book or of like prayers. Or like Tibetan Book of the Dead. Or like, hey guys, literally the back of your fucking hymnal if you're Methodist or Baptist. <laughs> like that shit takes you through funeral rites, how to run a service, how to mm-hmm. properly show your religious exactly. grief exactly. or whatever. Like it's, um, it feels like to me that the public fucking freaked out because oh my god ancient you words we ancient don't know and magic and and spells and rituals and everyone got afraid yeah so that's racism one way and uh racism the other way was i mean lovecraft come on <laughs> <laughs> so um lovecraft wrote that the title as translated from the greek language meant an image of the law of the dead compounded respectively from necros which means dead Nomos meaning law and uh, icon meaning image or icon, I guess. So um, Robert M. Price notes that the title has been variously translated by others as Book of the Names of the Dead, Book of the Laws of the Dead, Book of Dead Names, and Knower of the Laws of the Dead. Uh, S.T. Joshi, uh, academic, uh, academic, Joshi, 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 states that Lovecraft's own etymology is almost entirely unsound. The last portion of it is particularly erroneous since icon is nothing more than a neuter. I think it is just icon. Yeah, okay. Because it's the word that we, like, it's the, I mean, we still use it. It's icon in an American accent, Mm -hmm. basically. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's nothing more than a neuter adjectival suffix and has nothing to do with E-I-K-O-N, meaning image. Uh, Joshi translates the title as book considering or classifying the dead. That actually makes more sense. So... I think whether you're talking about scientists or, or I guess archaeologists mm-hmm. and historians, or you're talking about a fantasy writer, as it just sounds better. Yes, sometimes <laughs> you just want a word that conveys what you mean as a vague concept. 
rather than a true description of what the thing is. I um, um, it would make sense to me because to me, when I hear icon, I C O N, I think of lexicon, which that's what I was gonna say. So necronomicon would take. I would think necro yeah. meaning dead, book of the dead is what I would think. But like lexicon meaning language, so it would be like le- the names and language of the dead or something right. like that. It could literally just mean but like a visual. This is a visual of the dead. Like, yeah, you know. But basically, it does. Co- it, it the word itself in English anyway gives you the idea of oh names, death. It sounds maybe very, images, something well, like that. It know? sounds like a, a like a like a document, like. When you say it, if you think about the time period, it sounds like something you would name a, a an important document or a law or something like that. Yeah, like, like something important. It, it translates know? as like it translates as this is a different the Holy Bible. Like yeah, exactly. You exactly. know what I mean? Like it, you know, yeah, it's like, just the feel of the word. And not saying that we're not saying that it is equivalent. By the but, way, Holy Bible, holy meaning fucking holy, <laughs> and Bible meaning goddamn book. <laughs> So it's the book of holiness, right? It's yeah. literally that's Sounds all. Like a D and D item name. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> that's what I'm trying to get at. It's like because that's why I say the Bible and the Necronomicon are damn near the same um, as a word. As well, not even just as a word, but as a concept. Mm-hmm. Because while the Bible, you can literally track, like you're saying, with the like. There's not a fantasy author in the early 1900s who co-opted the name Bible, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but like the Bible was liter- that guy was one of the goddamn kings. You feel mm-hmm, me? Mm-hmm. Because he literally translated the Bible wrong, King James. Right. Translated the Bible wrong, added shit and removed shit so that it conformed to how he wanted to live, right? And how he wanted to rule his population, mm-hmm. right? So. It's the same he shit where it's it. like, <laughs> right? It's the same shit where it's like, like that's useless. I'll just take that out. <laughs> right. It's basically it's that same concept of yes, maybe this book and these words used to mean something, but the People Necronomicon and the Holy Bible are both damn. I would even say the Bible is even more often in fiction and other media. As a plot point rather than the point. Right. Mm-hmm. Which should illustrate my point on why I'm a skeptic on this stuff. <laughs> so although Lovecraft insisted that the book was pure invention and other writers invented passages from the book for their own works, there are accounts of some people actually believing the Necronomicon to be a real book. Lovecraft himself sometimes received letters from fans inquiring about the Necronomicon's authenticity. Pranksters occasionally listed the Necronomicon for sale in bookstore newsletters or inserted phony entries for the new uh, for the book in library card catalogs, where it may have been checked out by A. Alzared, ostensibly the book's author and original owner. The Vatican the person who I'm thinking now was f- fictional. Well, I don't know because according, according to Lovecraft, he made it up. He made this up is why I can't respect Lovecraft or his works <laughs> because, like, we can't even get to where these scrolls actually came from. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, or or. Like, we can't decide who and what is real about this story, which is why I don't respect this author. Because, again... He also comes from a time <sighs> where, like, if you found it and put your name on it, it's yours. it was yours. Right. So, like, he's not going to just come out and say, like, right. I plagiarized this out off of some 
historical documents I found at some like yeah. site. Like I bet the historical just... documents are fully boring as fuck. <laughs> Probably. Honestly, I bet they are literally like literally if you are in the South, go into a Methodist church and look at a hymnal. At the back of the book, there is a very clinical I mean, description of how you should do a funeral. If it was written in Sanskrit or uh, anything from ancient Sumeria, it was in pictograms. So, like, like hieroglyphics. Uh, yeah. So, good luck, you know, but getting that I'm, accurate. <laughs> that's why I'm saying speculating on it is because, yeah. like, I have a theory that I will literally never be able to prove, but I have a theory that... You know, yes, maybe we gained some new ways of thinking as far as critical thinking and comparisons and shit. But, like, abstract thinking is what I'm talking about. But, like, ancient people were just as smart as you. Absolutely. They just like, didn't they have didn't the, have the tools you have. Right. They did not have the education that you have. But they were fully just as capable of learning and communicating as you are. So and manipulating and manipulating all that shit. They were capable of making society in all of those nuances. Mm -hmm. So I, I guess I'm trying to say like the documents that survive from ancient cultures are generally fucking boring ass, like tax ass <laughs> Excel ass spreadsheets. <laughs> and also their myths, like their fiction, the shit, not sometimes their religion, but like, most of the Greek myths were also just myths back then. Some of it was religion, for sure. They did used to have bacchanalias and shit. They used to have temples and all that. But a lot of it is was, you know, known back then to be fiction. And I think that maybe just perhaps it is more likely that these Sumerian documents are a combination of fucking, you know, like a like a like a historical. I mean, if you think about thing. like ancient pagan rites though like it's going to be very very pop culture-y just because that's what the pop, pop culture right. is based off of right so like they're going to kill people they're going to use them as sacrifices they're going to chant in a circle because that's what they used to do imagine like <laughs> imagine like we're getting all up in a tizzy about all this stuff you know in the 60s or whatever mm -hmm. but imagine for a moment Somebody finds the fucking Bible in 10,000 years. Mm -hmm. There's stories in there about a God who wanted his favored servant, his favored follower, to sacrifice his own son. Mm -hmm. Maybe he stopped him. Sure. He <laughs> but like, he wanted him to do it. Yep. Just to prove himself. Just to prove it. He killed a man. He let the, well. He let a technically, whale eat somebody. <laughs> technically, he let the devil kill a man's family and steal his livelihood and like a whole book of the bible is dedicated to the shit that god will put you through to prove a point to the devil right like right. you know what i'm saying like and of course that you know those books are supposed to teach you about faith and whatnot and persevering through hard times and shit but like the text of that shit is clear as day i am your god and if you love me i will use that in a bet <laughs> like, that is how I feel about it anyway. Like, I know that that's maybe not what you are taught in, you know, Sunday school, because I went to. But, like, that's where I'm getting at. It's like, with the same clinical, fucking boring-ass church voice 
that is what they're doing oh, in that time. So like that that's Seems what I'm weird trying to get. Strange at. now, but back then everybody <clears throat> was doing it. Right. Okay. <laughs> it's it was the same as if you, like everybody goes to your church, you know, I it's a family it was occasion. Way less sacrifice than you think it was. 100%. I bet it wasn't even like one a year or whatever. I bet it was once when a calamity happened. Yeah, for sure. Like for it's sure. one of those it was things like where it's last like, resort sort right, of thing. Right now, I mean, hey guys, we do sacrifices all the fucking time. America only has like seventeen That's kind or eighteen of what years tides are. total, not in wartime. Right. Not in times where we're sending kids fresh out of fucking high school to die for us. Do you understand what I'm trying to tell you? Yeah. Like that is. The same shit. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And we talk about that with just the same level of fucking boredom on the news and shit. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, that's why when people are like, support our troops. Oh, you want me to support sending more young men to die? Fuck you. I support my troops by wanting them home. I support my troops by wanting fucking peace. I will pay $5 a gallon for gas if it means Ukraine stops getting bombed. I don't give a fuck. Like, I care more about human life than my money or a sticker on the back of my goddamn pickup. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Anyway, that should have been a rant. Yeah, this is going to be a weird segue. <laughs> it sure is. So uh, the line between fact and fiction was further blurred in the late, teen- late 1970s when a book purporting to be the translation of the real Necronomicon was published. This book by the synonymous Simon, mm-hmm. is the guy's name is Simon. Yeah, he tells you why in, yeah. in the book. Love a good Simon. Has little connection. What does Simon say? <laughs> This has little connection to the fictional Lovecraft mythos, but instead was based on Sumerian mythology. It was later dubbed the Simon Necronomicon, going into trade paperback in not the Sumerian. What? So the whole thing is, is that the reason I guess the first one was technically the reason the author goes by only Simon is because and he tells the story, but he him and his group of friends that go through all of this to decipher this these scrolls and stuff. Every single one of them dies in the process by one like overdoses, one commits suicide, mm-hmm. all of them die, but him. So he refuses to put his real name when he finally publishes it because he, you know, superstition. I was going to say like, I can understand how studying something that you think is creepy and, or mystical and also having tragedy happen. Mm-hmm. can make you that way yep i will also say because this is my podcast and this is what i do on it if your friend overdosed that's not on magic it's on your friend for sure for sure and two um, if your friend died commits, in a car accident <laughs> if your friend commits suicide as a person who does you know i got an attempt or two under my belt uh that's also not your fault <laughs> oh it's absolutely. not your friend's fault either absolutely that's depression um, I think it's supposed to just back up the idea that I get it, it's but spooky. like I just <laughs> this is what I say on the podcast all the time: exhaust your other options first. Yeah. Like, like I wouldn't build a sandwich and start with the meat. If you're interested, again, a history of the Necronomicon. That's very good. Tells you all about it. So, um, going into trade paperback in 1980, it has never been out of print and has sold 800,000 copies by 2006. Despite its contents, the book's marketing focused heavy on the Lovecraft connection and made sensational claims for the book's magical power. See, this is, this is, mm, yeah, okay. The blurb states it was potentially the most dangerous black book known in the Western world. 
Mm-hmm. Three additional vert volumes have since been published. The Necronomicon Spellbook, a book of pathworkings with the 50 names of Marduk, Dead Names, the Dark History of the Necronomicon, a history of the book itself and of the late 1970s New York occult scene, and The Gates of the Necronomicon, Necronomicon Instructions on Pathworking with the Simon Necronomicon. Now, a hoax version of the Necronomicon, edited by George Hay, appeared in 1978 and included an introduction by the paranormal researcher and writer Colin Wilson. I'll be honest, you have not convinced me that none of these are a hoax mm. so far. None of them are or none of them are Or excuse aren't. me, you, you, that one. That okay. none of them aren't a hoax so far. Yeah. I'm not necessarily convinced that they are, but like... So, a hoax version of the Necronomicon, but I've read that. Uh, David Langford described how the book was prepared from a computer analysis of a discovered quote-unquote ciphertext by Dr. John D. The resulting quote-unquote translation was in fact written by occultist Robert Turner, but it was far truer to the Lovecraftian version than the Simon text and even incorporated quotations from Lovecraft's stories in its passage. passages. Wilson also wrote a story, The Return of L- Loigor, in which the Voynich Manuscript turns out to be a copy of the Necronomicon. With the success of the Simon Necronomicon, the controversy surrounding the actual existence of the Necronomicon was such that a detailed book, The Necronomicon Files, was published in 1998, attempting to prove once and for all that the book was pure fiction. It covered- don't do that. Okay. It covered the well-known Necronomicon. That's the wrong way to do skepticism. I got to call it out. Like, you don't try to prove something fucking false, my guy. You just That's just a rule for a reason. <laughs> you can't prove a negative. God damn it. <laughs> um, it covered the well-known Necronomicon in depth, especially the Simon one. Uh, especially um, when it's something that people either believe or don't. It's right. not about whether it's true or not, man. God damn. Along with a number of more obscure ones, it was reprinted and expanded in 2003. In 2004, Necronomicon The Wanderings of Alzared. That's rad. That's a good name for a game. I want that. The Wandering of Alzared? Yes! <laughs> Absolutely. By Canadian occultist Donald Tyson was The published. Wanderings of Alzared, the mad poet, is rad as fuck. <laughs> uh, That's Ghost Stroke's third and now most <laughs> successful album. Okay. The Tyson Necronomicon is generally thought to be closer to Lovecraft's version than other published versions. It is a rock opera, yes, you're correct. <laughs> the Donald, T- Donald Tyson has clearly stated that the Necronomicon is fictional, but that that has not prevented his book from being the center of some controversy. Tyson has since published Alzared, a novelization of the life of the Necronomicon's author. <laughs> Alzared, a musical of the novelization <laughs> of the life of the mad poet. <laughs> Kenneth Grant, the British occultist, disciple of Aleister Crowley and head of the Typhonian Ordo Templi Orientis, uh-huh. suggested in his 1972 book, two book, The Magical Revival. 1972 Electric Boogaloo. <laughs> uh, that there was... <laughs> Wait. No, I'm sorry. I only said that because I heard you say boo too hard. Yeah. And so I said it and then I thought about it. And I don't know why it was funny to me, but I thought 1970, comma, two, Electric Boogaloo, right. like the sequel to 1970, and it yeah. was just, it just hit me out of a sudden. Uh, but according to that book, uh, there was an unconscious connection between Crowley and Lovecraft. He thought they both drew on the same occult forces, Crowley via his magic and Lovecraft through his dreams, which inspired his stories in the Necronomicon. 
Grant claimed that the Necronomicon existed as an astral book as part of the Akashic Records and could be accessed through the ritual magic or in dreams. Grant's ideas on Lovecraft were featured heavily in the introduction to the Simon Necronomicon and also have been backed by uh, Tyson, who was the the guy, uh, Donald Tyson, who was a Canadian occultist. So, that gets us out of the fictional part of the story, and now we're going to talk about the um, one of the books that was mentioned in that story uh, called The Voynich Manuscript. One of the books mentioned above, The Voynich Manuscript, is a fascinating book in its own right. Unlike the Necronomicon, The Voynich Manuscript is a very real book, but it's probably even more mysterious than anything Lovecraft could create. Because no one has ever yeah, been able... because he was a hack. <laughs> well, no, it's because no one has ever been able to read the book. Uh-huh. Crumbling medieval texts do I not... have to believe that there are many books like that. Well, it's quite possible. Crumbling medieval texts do not usually Because if make... there weren't, translators wouldn't have jobs. <laughs> Could not make... Uh, do not usually make for the subjects of frenzied online debate, with the notable exception of the thoroughly bizarre, persistently impenetrable Voynich Manuscript. The text, written in a language that has yet to be decoded, has confounded scholars, cryptologists, and amateur sleuths for centuries. This I believe. Historical research and television writer Nicholas Gibbs theorized that the manuscript is a woman's health manual, and each character of its elusive language represents medieval Latin abbreviations. Now, glib, glibs, ugh, glibs. That's hysterical. I don't understand it, so it must be for a woman. Uh huh. <laughs> so. <laughs> Gibbs claimed to have decoded two lines of the text. That is exactly how that works. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, he claimed to have decoded two lines of the text. Wait, I'm sorry. I don't understand why this drink comes in a frilly glass. It must be for a woman. <laughs> so but, he, but for a creepy manuscript. <laughs> so he claimed to have decoded the two lines of the text, and his work was initially met with enthusiasm. But alas, experts and enthusiasts were soon poking holes in his theory. One dude asked me one time at work, I know this is a tangent, and I'm not even sorry, but like, um, one time a guy asked me at work, he, I brought him one of our specials, it was the Hurricane, uh-huh, uh-huh. I brought it to him, and he was like, well, damn, is there a, uh, can you bring me a gayer drink? And I thought for a second, I said, yeah, I can bring you a drink called the Bayou Mai Tai, because <laughs> I could do that. And he was like, he just laughed, and I was like, oh, they're drunk. But I was like, what the fuck? It's 2022. What's happening right now? I don't understand. And then I remembered I'm in the South. Anyway, go ahead. Yeah. When he said that, you should have just said, don't say gay. Um, I, you know, I would have, except that I was on the floor and I want to keep my job. Yeah, that's true. Accurate. So uh, Lisa Fagan Davis, executive director of the Midi. I wouldn't have said, don't say gay. I would have been like, come on, man. Um, and if he was like, what? I'd be like, that's about it. So Lisa Fagan Davis, executive I director. still in it. You can the, keep talking of the medieval today. Academy of America told the Atlantic's Sarah Zhang that Gibbs decoded text doesn't result in Latin that makes any sense. My ADHD is bad right now. <laughs> Medicine not working, or it's just... working. I just, uh, I really do think it is. I just got a full night's sleep for the first time in a real long time, and I have way uh, more energy than I'm used to. So you know. <laughs> so the most recent interpretation of the Voynich manuscript may not have been sound but it's certainly not the wackiest theory about the text's contents and origin. The manuscript has been attributed to everyone from ancient Mexican cultures to Leonardo da Vinci to even aliens. To even DiCaprio. Some say the book is a nature encyclopedia. Others claim it's just an elaborate hoax. 
So why is the Voynich Manuscript proved so baffling, so polarizing over the years? Well, here are six things to know about the elusive manuscript. It cursed? No. Okay. It's divided into four sections, each of them very weird. As Michael LaPointe explains in the is Paris... Is each of them a gym? A gym? Fire, earth, wind, no. and goddamn water? Nope. The book begins with an herbal section featuring vibrant drawings of plants. You sure that's not the earth section? <laughs> but nobody is quite sure what sort of plants they are supposed to be. Then comes the astrological section. Poor guy. This is just a manuscript to somebody who really wanted to be a fucking scientist and had <laughs> terrible handwriting. <laughs> so, this, so the second section is the astrological section, which includes fold-out drawings of celestial charts that do not seem to match up with any known calendar. Amazing. Wind. <laughs> the astrological wheels are dotted with little drawings of nude women. And in the subsequent... He was 15. Bounty... <laughs> He's got to watch out for those vacuums, man. He's lucky he lived in an ancient time. <laughs> and in the subsequent ba- balneological section, and balneological means um, like mineral <clears throat> springs, soaking in mineral springs, I guess there's your water. Water, bitch. Okay. What? <laughs> The new if Dur- the next one is about fucking volcanoes or some <laughs> shit, Don. It's not. Um, so um, just explosions. So in that in the in the <laughs> black powder, he discovered it first. In the balneological <laughs> section, the new drawings go wild. Illustrations depict <laughs> that's a millennial saying I've, I've ever heard one. Uh, hey, these new drawings are raw, dude. <laughs> <laughs> so um the illustrations depict naked women bathing in green liquid, Why? naked women being propelled by jets of water. What? Naked women supporting rainbows with their hands. And some scholars believe that the one illustration shows naked women hanging out on a pair of ovaries. Are we sure this wasn't just Fairies. Like, literally a fucking 15-year-old? Nah. <laughs> literally, like, I'm thinking... Just a 15-year-old's like nature journal? Like a 15-year-old lesbian. <laughs> struggling with that you know what i'm saying because like i i have friends who have similar experiences to that like i when my fucking realized i was non-binary i couldn't stop fucking talking about it like like that shit's real you know what i'm saying like that sounds like oh yeah i was i was drawing a lot of dragon ball z but i didn't know why like you know what i mean like so the final section is the pharmacological section now, this includes additional drawings of plants, followed by pages of writing in the manuscript's mysterious language, which has been dubbed Boyanechis. So, this one is the drugs one. Yes. Okay. So, it's not quite Like fire, medicinal herbs. Yeah. Okay. But it's fucking close. Yeah. So, the next thing they're- Because, like, you know, this is a sativa. My brain is on <laughs> fire. So, the next thing to consider is that the manuscript's earlier owners also found it very confusing. The Voynich Manuscript first appears... I really want the end of this to be like, oh, and then we found out it was just a dude who discovered LSD. <laughs> <laughs> so the Voynich first appears in the historical record in the late 16th century, as Davis writes on her blog, Manuscript Road Trip. Rudolf II of Germany purchased the book for 600 gold ducats. Nice. I would also read... What did you say the thing was called? Manuscript Manuscript what? Road Trip. Manuscript Road Trip is a great podcast idea. <laughs> That's great. Yeah, I That's like good. It. I would fully listen to that. Mm-hmm. Anyway, that's all. <laughs> uh, believing it had been written by the 13th century English scientist Roger Bacon, it then passed into the hands of... <laughs> Six degrees away from Roger Bacon. <laughs> uh, Bacon. It then passed into the hands of Georgius Bartius, an alchemist from Prague. 
I That's the names. coolest thing you could be and the worst name you could have. <laughs> Sir Barfius. <laughs> it's B-A-R-S-C. What are you, dude? Barfius. What are you, dude? I'm an alchemist from Prague. Oh, what's your name? Georgius Barfius. <laughs> Get out of my house. Who referred to the book as a certain riddle of the Sphinx that was uselessly taking up space. It's humans. What? That's the answer. Oh. Everybody knows that now, Barfius. When, when Barcius, Barcius's, Barcius's heir, Johannes Marcus Marcy. I'm back on board for Barcius <laughs> because Barcius's heir is a great title for a novel. Oh, man. Um, inherited the manuscript. He sent it to an Egyptian hieroglyphics expert in Rome for help decoding the text. Such sphinxes as these. Not obey- in Egypt? No. White people, right? right? Such sphinxes as these obey no one but their master, Marcy wrote in an accompanying letter, according to Davis. Didn't sphinxes not have masters? I'm not sure if that's... The manuscript then disappeared for 250 years, only to resurface when it was purchased by Polish book dealer Wilfred Voynich in 1912. Somebody got rich off that book. I'm going to just tell you that right now. <laughs> Voynich refused to divulge the manuscript's previous owner, leading many... And I bet somebody is still rich off of that book. I'm sure. Because if it disappeared for 200 years, that means somebody incredibly it was rich. Rated. For, well, yeah. in this time period, it feels like somebody probably sold it to someone. Mm-hmm. Who kept it in a collection. Who kept for a it long in a collection time. and then died, and then their kids forgot about it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like, And then they were going through grandpa's shit and was yep. like, especially it's got if it's to like go. a one of a kind thing. <laughs> like, yeah. even, like, I don't care what time you're in, that'll set you up for generational wealth. Mm-hmm, yeah. mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So Voynich refused to divulge the manuscript's previous owner, leading many to that believe that That is to say, did. if it didn't get burned in a fire and then faked again later. Yeah. Right. So this led many to believe that he had authored the text himself. But after Voynich's death, his wife claimed that he had purchased the book from the Jesuit college at Frascati near Rome. No, he didn't. He bought it off. Of, if he bought it, he bought it from somebody off the black market. Because if a fucking university had it. They would have, there would have been news articles about that shit. Yeah. So some of the world's most prominent cryptologists have tried and failed to decode the text. Unless they didn't know what it was and they sold it to him out of a bargain bin in the library. <laughs> William Friedman, the pioneering cryptologist known for breaking Japan's code during World War II, spent years trying to decipher the Voynich manuscript. Who again? William Friedman. Thank you. Uh, according to the Washington Post's Sadie Dingfelder, these names, wonderful. It, I'm so glad I did not live during this time period. What, what was Mrs. it? Mrs. Dingfelder, like the sharps and the smarts, and who else? Uh, Fucking Bo 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 uh, was the I, you know you guys? I'm might sorry be if I offended uh, Bo Burbity out there. Fuck Bo Burbity. Bo Burbity's dead, and he probably murdered. Yeah, children. but who's Fuck to say that, that that there's not somebody out there with that name? If you're listening, well, I'm sorry, honestly, you're probably a fine person. If your person. name is still Bo Burbity, change it. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, what wh- what did you used to say? Sorry. Uh, no, that was just the Washington. No, um, that was according to Dingfelder. Yeah. Right. Um, you guys might be thinking dirty. I was actually just thinking like a boxing match, like ding, Felder, <laughs> but old timey. <laughs> he Felder. Yes, um, yes. And she goes down in the third round type shit. Now, he ultimately concluded that it was an early attempt to construct an artificial or universal language of the a priori type. 
according to the point of the Paris Review. I know those. I don't know those words. I don't either. Do you know those words? A priori. I have no idea. I'm gonna, I'm gonna Google it right now. There Hold you on. Go. Let's get smarter together. Say, say it again. A priori or a priori. Put it, put it in uh, in context. Uh, was try uh, an early attempt to construct an artificial or universal language of the a priori type. Less pictographs, more like actual it is letters. Basically, it's two words: a yeah. priori, relating to or denoting reasoning or knowledge which proceeds from theoretical deduction rather than from observation or experience. Um, pulling uh, he's a pulling oh, a gotcha. uh, pulling a Sherlock. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, priori is the kind that cops supposedly do. I would assume. I'm going to so, look it up now. So, although so like its stereotyping. Origins, <laughs> although its origins remain murky, Voynichese, which is the language that it's written in, does not appear to be complete gobbledygook. In 2014, Brazilian researchers used complex network modeling to show that the text displays similar linguistic patterns to that of known languages. The researchers were not, however, able to translate the book. Inferential is a synonym of a priori. Okay, there you go. So um, the the Voynich has been Voynich manuscript has been carbon dated back to the 15th century. So that's the 1400s. So the testing, which was carried out in 2009, well, that's weird. Why? Oh no, it's not because you did mention they thought it might have been Latin shorthand. Yeah. Okay. Uh, It showed that the parchment likely dates to sometime between 1404 and 1438. That's pretty specific. Yeah. As Davis notes, these results rule out several individuals who have been named as authors of the manuscript. Roger Bacon, the English scientist, died in 1292. Da Vinci was only born in 1452. And Voynich came into the world long after the manuscript was written down. Alien authors, however, remain a possible... uh, No, they don't. Viable possibility. They fully don't. They might. Mm. This Mm. goes back to the, the story, but the aliens were first. The great old ones. Correct. You go back to ancient Sumerian mythology or religion. Yeah, but see, that's the thing. Depending on how you're looking at it. This might be my own bias, but whether or not you say another planet or another realm or heaven or whatever, it is in many, if not all, mythologies, you can physically go there, which makes it indistinguishable from a different planet. So, like, whether they said the name for planet or not, they might just not have had the name for heaven yet. Right, right. Like, to me, them coming from another like God has been an alien forever. He lives in fucking space or something. They, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I think, but I think like in, in, in Christian image, in Christian religion that it's like a like a separate dimension yeah. almost. It sort of not. It's not like space. it's like where you go when you die. But also in Samaria, this is where like uh, Olympus and stuff comes from. Mm-hmm. Um, because in Sumerian, I, I know that they had like a realm of the dead and a realm of the gods. The only thing Christianity did was make those two realms the same place. Right. Right. So like that, all I'm trying to say is, yeah, they might've been technically aliens in our current lexicon, our current. You know, well, I believe, I believe that, that where we get the actual alien idea from um, is that there are pictures of what we would consider alien spaceships coming down. Right. Sure. Um, in their pictogra- uh, pictography, pictograms. Yeah. Sure. Uh, I don't know but we are called. also kind of assuming on that because we, we feel like we are pretty close to what they meant when they were writing those pictograms. But even now, translations change. Often. Oh, for sure. For so sure. So all I'm trying to say is, is that 
you could say aliens or gods or angels or demons, and it's all the same to me, which is why I say... He's a skeptic. Nah. No. The devil, you say. <laughs> the devil, you say? <laughs> um, to be fair, I was a huge skeptic. Uh, uh, it's been a while since I've been a skeptic, but uh, I was a huge skeptic as well. So I understand your position. <laughs> I grew up Catholic, so. Yeah. But that's just a hop, skip, and a jump from yeah, Pagan, that, so that let's be real. Because <laughs> um, I can't tell you the number of people who've become atheists or skeptical. And I asked them, when did you become an atheist? They're like, well, I was raised Catholic. I was like, never mind. I yeah, yeah. I yeah. The Which, number of pagans I've met that are yeah. like, hey, I was Catholic. And I'm like, yeah, I was weird Catholic, you guys. Uh, we buried statues in the yard to help sell our house. Uh -huh, uh -huh. Um, what did you just <laughs> say? Because I feel like I missed my own point. That the possibility that aliens wrote the book is still a possibility. Oh, yeah. No. <laughs> no. So recent Voynich research also relies heavily on computer analysis. Though with far more sophisticated tools. Because if they did, I feel like it would be less debatable. Well, I think the reason that it, it they could have is because that there's apparently star systems. And the star systems are anything we recognize as being in our actual galaxy or anything we can see. Our constellations um, have not changed in our lifetimes, but our star our star charts have for sure for sure that, and so like and uh, i don't agree this guy did look different <laughs> but i'm just saying like pisces forever <laughs> just, not changing it to add in also, ophelius okay i was just about to mention that shit i was just I'm not adding like, in that 13th, like a 13th sign. or a 14th yes, sign it, or it's some shit for the same reason that we have leap year okay it's because some of that time adds up and when that time adds up there's like a small window where there is a constellation, the 13th constellation. Also, um, you know, 13 is an unlucky number back I in disagree. the day. I disagree. 13 is my I said lucky back number. in the day. It's still unlucky now. <laughs> um, so, you know, they took that one out, but it's like a snake god or something. Word. It's dope. Anyway. So, Lisa Fagan Davis, the medieval scholar who has followed the Voynich research since the 1990s, says the incredible advances in computing power have also helped debunk proposed solutions. We have a way to analyze and critique solutions that are published in a sophisticated and almost inarguable way, she said. So now they're bringing science. The mysterious illustrations are also a draw for some researchers. Botanist Arthur Tucker has claimed since 2013 that the Voynich plants were native to the 16th century Americas. In a recent email, he said that his non-computational approach to interpreting each of the botanical illustrations stirred up anger from more data-focused scientists whose methods he, dif he dismissed without elaboration as circular reasoning, but his theory hasn't caught on with either botanists or data scientists. Physicist Andreas Schinner says he was drawn in by other scientists' attempts. Perhaps I just wanted to find out if I could do better than this, he said. Using random walk mapping drawn from mathematics and applied to strings of characters, he suggested in 2007 that the text was generated from an underlying sto stochastic or sto sto stochastic, sorry, stochastic, stochastic, right? There's no I, st no stochastic okay. process, R randomness like the frequency of falling raindrops and not a natural language, which has structure. A second paper he co-authored in 2019 elaborated on his theory to propose a possible generating algorithm 
for the text, simple enough that a medieval scribe could have done it as a hoax. Their research seems to support the idea that the manuscript is meaningless. Other reasons... I don't think it's meaningless. I truly believe, based on the amount of time you described naked women, it was... I don't know what gender this... Probably like a teenager was, <laughs> but they were definitely struggling with sexuality at this point in their life. Something. For sure. In some kind of way. Absolutely. Um, other recent studies contradict Schenner's conclusion... A team of scientists in Brazil and Germany in 2013 ran their own statistical analysis and drew the opposite conclusion. The text was likely written in a language and not randomly generated. In 2016, Greg Kondrak, a computer scientist at the University of Alberta, and his student, Bradley Howard, deployed a machine, a machine learning algorithm trained on 380 translations of the same block of text to propose that the content is jumbled up Hebrew written in a strange script. Turkish engineer and his son, meanwhile, theorize that the script is a phonetic transcription of the medieval Turkish dialect and plan to publish a paper on their findings in 2020. I really hope that they solve this in the lifetime of our podcast because I want it to be so badly that this manuscript is literally like... 14th century Playboy? No. (laughs) Literally like the, the secret diary of a teen... Or preteen, but they're writing, like, instead of writing about Nick Jonas or whatever the girls write about now. They're writing about the stars and plants. Right. It's like, (laughs) Like the nerdy version, right? Well, it's like, it's like, oh, cool, things I like. Right. Botany. Women, for some reason now, because I'm a teen and I'm learning about that. And, like, you know, the stars and, like, I don't know, whatever my mom's into and my dad or whatever. (laughs) So everyone wants to prove it, to crack it, to prove your own abilities, to prove you're smarter, says Davis, the medieval, the medieval scholar. One problem, she adds, especially with a complex medieval manuscript, is that researchers are specialists. Uh, hardly anyone out there understands all the different components of the manuscript, she points out, referring not just to the illustrations, but to things like the binding, the inks, and the handwriting. It's going to take a whole interdisciplinary team. That's usually how that works, Yeah. yeah. She cites the controversy over Cheshire's... Wow. Lo- Leave it to a woman to explain <laughs> to a predominantly male field, like, hey guys, the solution is fucking work together once. <laughs> um, she cites the controversy over Cheshire's linguistic analysis, an example of the limits of scholarly publishing. Although his paper was peer-reviewed, ordinarily the gold standard of scholar- scholarly rigor, the reviewers were most likely specialists in romance languages, since the paper was published in a journal of romance studies. And peer review is an often opaque process, even for topics far less obscure than the 600-year-old manuscript. God dang it. For his part, Cheshire remains confident in his work, drawing distinction between himself... His name is Cheshire, and I don't trust him. (laughs) Alice Um, ruined that for me. Accurate. Um, Between himself and others would be code crackers. And other would be code crackers, I'm sorry. He is right, and they are wrong. Simple, he says. That's how fucking idiots talk. (laughs) For other Voynich researchers, the main point is what you learn along the way. And I'm right and they're wrong. (laughs) Over the last five years, journals covering computational linguistics, physics, computer science, and cryptology have published Voynich papers. Some later debunked by many others, outlining a new approach to analyzing the text rather than making a definitive claim to a solution. In the latter cases, the goal may primarily be showcasing new tools that can be applicable to other fields. 
Artificial intelligence algorithms, for example, often require large data sets for training and, and testing before they can be widely applied. An analysis of the Voynich manuscript can help physicists and other scientists test whether new number crunching methods can identify meaningful patterns in vast amounts of abstract data. That's why math is cool as fuck, because it can help you translate shit without other shit that is also language. Basically, what I'm saying is... Um, math we're and getting, language, same thing. Pretty much. We're getting to a place where like, math can help you algorithmically decode message like ancient languages yeah. so you don't need like a rosette we're getting to like artificial rosetta stone territory right which is fucking exciting very in 2013 brazilian physics paper uh, Bra- mm. okay sorry i'm just really excited about it because if you have like a machine that can look at a thing and see a pattern and identify that pattern as some sort of communication that means we could maybe learn shit about prehistorical societies, like who didn't have writing, like uh, those the knotted ropes. Yeah. We could maybe start deciphering shit like that. We could maybe start deciphering things that are even older than that. It would be really cool. We would learn a lot more about our history, that's for sure, as yeah. a species. Because you can identify patterns in language, but you could also identify patterns in like Oh, if the buildings were set up like this from these ruins or whatever. They, they did it for a reason. Right. They did it for a reason. Maybe it shows you what the landscape was like back when Maybe back it then. Or, you know, it tells you more about history. And that is, you know, useful, if not just, inform, you know, just interesting cool, inst- guys, information. Just cool. So the 2013 Brazilian physics paper used the Voynich manuscript to illustrate how statistical, physical, or physics <laughs> methods can be adapted to find hidden linguistic patterns and con- concluded the text didn't seem randomly generated. And Kondrak and Howard's machine learning paper focused primarily on describing the language analysis algorithms that you- they use to detect Hebrew as the underlying language. Even if neither theory has been accepted as a Voynich solution, they may still prove effective in other areas. As Schinner puts it, you never know what will happen when you apply this or that method. Since the manuscript's con- content remains unknown, whatever researchers learn through trial and error can help them develop techniques that can later be used on practical problems. I just have the part of the DuckTales theme stuck in my head for some reason. So in my head right now, all I'm hearing is what you're saying. And also in the background, life is like a hurricane here in Duckburg, but over and over and over again. Okay. ADHD is a bitch. <laughs> So in the end, the manuscript may simply be an unsolvable mystery. Robert Richards, a historian of science at the University of Chicago, uses the Codex to teach the concept of scientific paradigms, where scientific theory comes to shape a field of research so strongly that scientists can always explain or identify anomalies outside of the theory. I know. (laughs) Richards likens the Voynich text to the inscrutable language used by aliens landing on Earth in the 2016 film Arrival. We're not even sure it's really language at all, since it's so far outside our linguistic paradigm. Though it looks like it means something, he says. We... Typical human, assuming something's not language just because it's not in a way you can understand it. We could... They must be barbarians. <laughs> <laughs> we could be assured that of that only... Okay, we could be assured of that only if we can translate it into our language. Who knows, he says. Yeah, because English or whatever <laughs> is the goddamn standard. <laughs> 
Uh, he's, who knows, he says of the Voynich Manuscript, it may be, after all, just a medieval nonsense joke. I bet, again, I really want it to be like a, you know, a fake language you make up at 13 just because you don't want your mom to read your journal type shit. So if anybody is interested, the Voynich Manuscript is available online. Yale's Benike Rare Books and Manuscript Library, which now holds the manuscript, keeps it locked safely in a vault. Should you fancy taking a crack at the ever-enigmatic Voynich Manuscript, the complete digital, a complete digital copy is available online, but consider yourself warned, the Voynich rabbit hole is very, very deep. That's hysterical that they put it online like that. Yeah. Because um, they're like, listen, guys, we've Crowd had the greatest sourcing. minds in the world working this for hundreds of years. We don't understand. Please help us. Anybody. <laughs> Guy in the basement, you. I know you know what this means. <laughs> I'm telling you, it's a journal. It's like, it's like, yeah, it's a journal between two twins who made up a secret language. <laughs> yes, that's the shit I'm on right yeah, now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, we're so two slaves. Let's let's go some, there. Yeah. yeah, let's do let's do go there. In fact, <laughs> you know, they're they're you know just putting down stuff that they see and and things that they're doing. I want to know what what's happening when they're drawing pictures of women shooting is. up with uh, water jets. That's what fucking threw me. <laughs> Again. That's why I connected it to a teenager because right. I was like, that young feels like somebody displayed. working through but like also, new information. Think about the time period though. Like yeah. they were the 13 year olds were like running businesses and going to war and having families and like well, taking care of homesteads and like. Actually, historically, rich, rich like nobles would mm-hmm. get married younger but they still would not consummate. That's why consummating a marriage was such an important thing because it, you wouldn't consummate it until after right, right. puberty, which I mean, happened had to be maybe slightly about the same time, maybe slightly later, depending on the time period we're talking about. But right. like peasant folk like us generally have been holding to the same traditions as always. Right, right. Um, we are generally – we wait until we're old enough to fucking make decisions rationally <laughs> for ourselves to get married. Right. Some cultures, of course, do do still still do uh, prearranged right. marriages and stuff. But yeah. like, you know what I'm saying? Like, it is it works generally out for them, so, you know. <laughs> generally it is a little bit. It is way less than we are kind of culturally like us. Um, like pop culture teaches us, right? Uh, because it's interesting to talk about a 13 year old. Well, I mean, Princess like even to get married even my my grandmother, my my just unquote. grandmother, uh, she Not got married at uh, fifteen to a twenty three year old, mm-hmm. um, and had eleven children. Yeah, shit like and, that uh, happens. So I know that wasn't your typical campfire story. It's not something you would tell around the campfire. So more maybe this was more of a magic circle story. Yeah, where everybody gets high and you bring something up and just yeah. This was like a, a this was like a we're summoning. Um, Yogg-Sothoth. Depending on the group no. that you're telling the story to, though, it could be a campfire story. Yeah. Could yeah. be. Nerd camp. I would say we're gonna we're gonna summon like uh, what was the one Shebnagorath? That Sheb- one. Shebnagorath. What's the one that was we were using in the campaign? Nyarlathotep. Nyarlathotep. That's yeah. the one we summon. Because yeah. uh, why not? It's a fun name to say. <laughs> you get to chant it over and over again. Yeah. Um. So that's about gonna wrap it up here. So uh, remember, we are on Facebook. Uh, facebook.com slash two times over or ledger podcast that is going to be the quickest way to get to us uh again uh we mentioned it in the midweek episode we've narrowed it down 
the title to either uh, Historical Society, Small Town Gossip, or The Corner Cafe. Mm-hmm. Um, so if any of those strike your fancy, let us know. I quite like Small Town Gossip. Josh came up with that one. It's real good. Yeah. Um, also, we have a Patreon. We have a Patreon. Patreon.com slash Two Towns Over. Yep. No dashes. Nope. Um, we've got a few Patreons. We love them. Thank you. Yes. Appreciate you. As Josh would say, please pay us so we can quit our day jobs. <laughs> Yeah, we're getting there. Another 600 of you, and we'll be able to do that. So, I um, hope to contribute to that. Huh? I hope to help contribute to that. I have some friends who will be listening in. So, Oh, cool. We yeah. love that. Yeah, we love you. Yes. And as you can see, we let anybody come on the show. So, <laughs> I mean, that is kind of true. <laughs> this is our, she's our fourth guest? Something like that. Yeah. One of our guests kind of became a podcaster yeah two of our well i guess if you count josh no because he he just kind of we just kind of invited him over yeah, we adopted him early. we just adopted him early and then cat kind of just stole the slid show right we, in yeah. there and then we've had mark mark and brandon brandon so actually she's like fifth yeah well no if you count josh then yeah she's yeah. The fifth. but if you don't which i don't think we should you're fourth yeah heck yeah so if we keep this up, we'll have 17,000 people on the show every week. Uh-huh. And uh, <laughs> we will drown out the noise of every other podcast, and yes. you will have no choice but to pay us heed. We will be worldwide. We will dominate. That'd be fun. So uh, thank you again for coming. Uh, I've been Don. I've been Ruben. Kelsey. And we will talk to you next time. Bye. Later. Later.